book of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I'm glad each one of you are here. And I'm looking forward to what God is going to do for the remainder of this year. As we kind of, we're not quite there yet, but we're almost to the last month. And it just seems like it flies by. But God has been with this church. And uh, I'm convinced, in fact, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are better now than we were 11 months ago. God has walked us through some places, and he has blessed and he has helped. Let's continue that, I pray in Jesus' name. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the light righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Familiar portion of Scripture, one that I have read and quoted a few times over the last month or so. But watch this next verse. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, and it's not said, but it's implied, that those that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject unto the law of God, neither can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, and now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Using that verse and just launching from that, that portion of Scripture, I want to ask you this, what will your reaction be when Jesus comes again? What will your reaction be when Jesus comes again? Why don't you just bow your heads and let's pray that God's word would speak. Father, I ask right now in the mighty name of Jesus that you would let your word come forth again. Would you let my life be ready to receive it, my heart, my mind, and my soul be ready to receive what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and you can be seated. Hallelujah. How many of you, now I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm not trying to, to uh, belittle anyone that has not. So this is not a test. There's no wrong answers. No one's going to get the stink eye if you answer differently. But I do think we ought to honor those that have. How many of you here today has read your Bible through at least one time? From, from, from Genesis to Revelation. Anybody done it multiple times in your life? Absolutely. You know what's amazing, Brother Peters? I, I'm sure you and Sister Peters have read your Bible through many, many times. And here's what's amazing. Every time I open the Bible, I find something new. So I want to invite you to Matthew chapter 2. We're past Thanksgiving. I know we're not quite in December, but let's put the turkey up and all of the fall decorations and let's just jump right into the Christmas season. How about that? Black Friday has went on and happened and I hope y'all had fun and got everything you want. Amazon is my friend, and so I don't even have to get out of my house to go shop, and it's a wonderful thing. But let's focus on a verse that I have read countless times. I've heard read countless times. But to be honest, Brother Sponsor, I had never, I guess, seen or focused on this part, and I want to do so tonight. Matthew chapter 2. And now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
In the king, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship these him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and this is the part I, I never have quite caught, and all Jerusalem with him. Now we know that Herod had a problem with Jesus. We know that when the wise men came, you know the story. And I, honestly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time about what Herod was going to do. You know, he, he told the wise men, go, go find Jesus. Come back, report to me. They didn't do it because God told them not to. And Herod gets mad and kills all of the, 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 the boy children that are two years and younger and has them slaughter. It's a dark time in Israel's history. You know the story. But I had never really focused on the fact that not only was Herod troubled when Jesus came, but Jerusalem was troubled when Jesus came. And so I want to take some time and, and look at some things. Give me a little bit of time to uh, to just sort of set the stage and maybe teach you some stuff that you hadn't thought about or something like that. But I don't know a lot about those wise men. The song says there were three wise men from Orient came. The, the manger scenes that you normally get have three wise men. The Bible doesn't really tell what they are. The word wise men is translated from a word called magi, which even though sounds like magic, it was not that they did hocus-pocus things, but they were uh, astrologers and, and, and they were watching the stars and somewhere over in the east, probably Persia or Babylon, maybe even what we would call India, they had watched and God had given them a miraculous star somewhere in the study of that star that appeared in the heavens throughout countless readings. They had begun to read the things that they could find in the scrolls of the word of God. The fact that a child, a king, would be born in Bethlehem and they began to follow that star until it led them to Jerusalem. Lest you think that that would be odd, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are not that far apart from each other. If you'd like to know more, you can see Sister Peter. She just got back from a trip over in, in Israel and that. And I'm, I've watched her pictures on Facebook. I'm sure she'd love to show you all the things that we'll talk about tonight. And uh, But there they were, these men. Now, I believe they were religious men. I, I don't know that they served the one true God. But inside of them, there was a hunger to know more. They were not Jews. They were not God's chosen people. In fact, you need to just come to the fast realization that some of the first people that God let know that he was coming was not the Jews, but the Gentiles. And that premise is, is carried on throughout the Bible. For from the very beginning, John chapter 4 and verse 42, Jesus came to be the Savior not of Abraham's children and what they would call uh, uh, the Israelites, but Abraham's children, plural, meaning the Gentiles too. I hope you're excited about that since that's who you is. But uh, you can get a little bit excited that he come to save your sorry soul. The Magi came seeking the king. I've preached messages. I've heard other messages preached that wise men still seek the Lord. But Herod was not. This is Herod the Great. There are several Herods that you find throughout the Bible. Herod 
that is mentioned at Jesus' birth does not go past Jesus' childhood. He dies, and then another one takes his place. But this is Herod the Great. He was king. He was called king. He was set by the Roman Senate under the influence of Mark Antony. He was a, a, a cunning and crafty man, a man that knew how to walk the political hallways. He knew how to satisfy what needed to happen. Herod was an evil man. He would call himself a Jew, but he was far from it. Herod had his own family killed. If anything prevented or interfered with his rule, he would murder them. He had his own wife slain. He had her two brothers slain. At least nine times, maybe even ten, he, he was married. You can, you can go Wikipedia or whatever kind of study you like to do and you can research Herod the Great. He was a man that walked. In fact, when I look at Herod the Great, I see elements of, uh, of North Korea and, and Kim Jong-un and, and, and all of that and how it all flows together. Just no, whatever it takes to consolidate his rule. It's no surprise then that when someone knocks on the palace door and says we're here to see the king of the Jews that was just born that Herod would have risen up inside of him and said I'm not going to let anyone take that title. But there's another reason that's very interesting. There's a lot of things that, that just astound me if you'll really research the Bible. But Herod was not what we would consider a, a full born Jew. Uh, if you do some research in Herod's life, you will find that his father was actually, and I'm going to try to pronounce it, I don't know if it's right, but an, a Demaian, a descendant of Esau. You know the story of Esau. Esau, Jacob, one sells out what God had promised him for a bowl of soup. One is kind of on a different course in life. One is listed all the way in the book of Jude uh, as not, you don't want to follow him. On, on Herod's father's side, he was ascendant, a descendant of Esau. On Herod's mother's side, he was a descendant of the Arabs or he was a descendant of Ishmael. It's very interesting that Herod who came against the king of, of, of creation was on both sides the wrong brother. If you look through the history, you find that Esau and Ishmael had issues with God. It's an age-old struggle. The age-old struggle that began before Esau and Jacob were even born, Genesis 25 shows. It is a spiritual uh, uh, mirroring that happens. And that is, it's not just enough that he had a, a, a human lineage. But whenever you can see an Esau or an Ishmael, you ought to just in your mind think the carnal versus the spiritual. The one that says I'll sell my future for a bowl of soup that will last me 30 minutes before I'm hungry again versus the one that is hungry for the things of God. Can I tell you today how you respond to the coming of Jesus is directly tied with are you carnal or are you spiritual? Are you an Esau follower? Are you an Ishmael follower? Or are you an Isaac or a Jacob the carnal and the spiritual. It is astounding when I begin to read in the, the, the Bible 
It says in Matthew chapter 2. Now, now just, just hang with me. Give me some time. I'm going slow, but I want you to catch this. It astounds me. The Bible says when Herod heard these things, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. And then he gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together and demanded of them, where is Christ going to be born? Now, I, I think I understand my Bible. I think I understand the Jewish uh, 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 understanding. And that is, they were looking for the Christ. Is that right? They were looking for a Messiah. Herod gets the chief priest together, and he goes to the chief priest, and he says, hey, chief priest, where is Christ going to be born? It is, I mean, instantly, that, that chief priest said, well, the scripture says that he is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea because it is written by the prophet, thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not thou the least of the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people in Israel everything fit you had the prophecy that they had read all of their lives that said the Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem you have these wise men coming saying I saw a sign in the heavens that the king of the Jews is going to be born in Bethlehem Herod didn't want to find him or if he did he was going to kill him the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes knew the word of God, knew where he was, but they would not go and worship him. From what I understand, I've not been there, Brother Sponsler, you've been over at the Holy Land, some others have, but from what I understand, literally it's almost only five miles from where they were to where Jesus was born. They were five miles away. The chief priest was five miles away from the king of kings present in their midst and they knew it and did not respond. And so it begins to walk there. I find it very interesting that the ones that found him were the Gentiles. How was Christ received? You have to understand there's two times Christ came at Bethlehem but there is coming another day when he's going to split the eastern sky but instead of angels announcing his arrival he's going to march down and pick you and I up if you will and carry us to him but the Bible tells me in John he came unto his own and his own received him not. I, I'm just, I am blown away at, at how the, the New Testament is so in sync with the old. God called Abraham out of Ur and said, I want you to go to a, a city and I, or into a land in which I'm going to give you and it's going to be your inheritance and it is going to be for you and your descendants. And Abraham leaves where he is and he goes down into his uh, 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 promise Something happens and he starts doubting God. And where does he end up? Egypt. God begins to tell him, you go to Egypt, you'll end up serving me. Your descendants will serve me for some 450 years in bondage. Jacob, Esau, Isaac, all of them, they begin to come. And what do they do? Instantly you find that family back in Egypt. And Egypt ends up putting them in bondage. And Egypt begins to be an arch enemy of Israel. 
What did I preach this morning in the book of Daniel? That there was a eastern culture, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that because of their uh, of Israel's denouncing of God's privilege in their life because they wouldn't follow, God said, I'm going to let some eastern countries become your enemy. And Assyria and Babylon came and spoiled the Israelites and the, and the nation of Judah. But yet at Jesus' birth, you find that his own did not receive him. And so later on in the story of Jesus' birth, you find that there was a nation called Egypt that accepted him for some two or three years. You find that the ones that were listening and watching were the ones that used to be the enemy. Those, those Eastern, that Babylonian culture where those Magi most likely came out of was there. But, but the reason Jerusalem couldn't accept his coming lies in a study that you can begin to look in the state of society there in Jerusalem you and I are not privileged with time machines you and I are not privileged for us to be able to go back but if you can read if you can study you will find that there is some pretty good glimpses of what life was like when Jesus was born a doctor Edder, and I think it's pronounced Edersheim, and I have one of his books, and he's written many more, has made a, su a study of the subject of that, and, and, and I don't have time to give you chapter and verse, but he's an authority on the life of Jerusalem during that time, and this is what he states, and I quote, These Jerusalemites, these townspeople as they were called, were so polished, so witty, so pleasant, and how much there was to be seen and heard in those luxuriously furnished houses and the sumptuous entertainments. At the women's apartments there in Jerusalem, friends from the country would see every novelty of dress and adornments and jewelry. They could look and examine themselves in looking glasses. You could get anything you want in Jerusalem. You could get perhaps a false tooth or an Arabian veil or a Persian shawl or an Indian dress. They, they showed that this luxurious nature of Jerusalem and it became what they wanted, the dignity of those Jerusalemites, the wealth that they lavished on their marriages and the dishes that were served and the right crystal vases that the wine was poured out of. It mirrored the lavishness of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, it, 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 there, there are some things that, that were good, I guess, that he did. It was during Herod the Great's rule that they rebuilt the temple into this magnificent structure. He built ports on cities and there by the sea. He was a king that relished the grand and relished the, the luxury and relished the riches. And so when the people of Jerusalem heard that their king might be born in Bethlehem, they begin to put, look down their nose and say, can anything good come out of that? I don't want my king to come out of some God-forsaken little slum outside of Jerusalem. And they begin to look, see, a Herod suited them better for kings. His court had set the example of luxury. 
And so they didn't want the simple, humble, peaceful surroundings of the one that lay in that manger of Bethlehem. That boy of Nazareth whose father they understood was a carpenter, whose mother was a betrothed virgin. They didn't understand any of that. And so they became very concerned when they said there's a king born in Jerusalem. Of course, Herod's trouble was so readily understood. I don't have to take a lot of time to go over it. He simply didn't want to lose his position. But here you have these wise men. Just to play the part of tradition, there's three of them. There's a great caravan of donkeys and camels, a great caravan of courtesans and, and, and servants, and they're there. And these, these magi had all of the wealth that they could imagine. These magi had all of the status that they would have needed. They knew what it was like to walk in king's palaces. They could have fit right in to Jerusalem's scene. It would have fit perfectly. But there was one thing they had, or they didn't have, that they desperately wanted. They didn't have Jesus. I want to ask you today, as you look at your life, what do you have versus what do you crave? Are you, are you governed by the things of the natural rather than by the things of the spiritual? Are you governed by the things of a fallen, carnal nature? Or are you governed by the things of the soul? A picture striking in contrast. The magnificence of Herod's uh, palace there in Jerusalem. Surrounded by all of the gaiety and, and, and riches that were there. And these wise men left that for a lowly manger. As they begin to seek the one that they had been searching for it's, it's a, a contrast of the carnal and the spiritual and that same contrast seen at the beginning of Jesus' life will be seen again when Gabriel blows that trumpet there will be those that when God begins to say I'm coming back when that eastern sky splits and the trumpet sounds There'll be those like Jerusalem that are troubled because his coming's going to mess them up. Or is there a people looking for a builder, or for a city whose builder and maker is God? As much as we've talked about Herod, I think we would be wise to leave that carnalness behind and look more at the magi that were there. These magi that exhibited great faith. I don't know what all they understood. I don't know what all they believed. I know some of the verses that they had read, but I'm not for sure all of it. But something drove them out of their house. How long did they travel? Who knows? Was it a day, a week, a month, maybe even years? Perhaps even before uh, Mary and Joseph began their journey to Bethlehem. There on the other side of the world it seemed there was a group of wise men that saddled up their animals and they began to go on their own journey to the unknown. They left their home because they were seeking the Christ. Can you imagine their neighbor's reaction? 
Much like the one who asked Noah what he was building and how long it was going to take and why he was doing it. Can you imagine the neighbor that saw his friend getting up on a camel and putting some gold and some frankincense and myrrh there in the saddlebags and said, what you doing? Going on a journey. Where are you headed? Not sure. See that star right there? I'm going to go there and wherever that ends, I'm going to find not that we're superstitious, but how many of you tried to find the end of a rainbow? Some of you are, are, are willing to tell me. You've tried to find the end of a rainbow. Don't work. I mean, to me, a star moves. And it really, I mean, it does, but it doesn't. But, you know, it's not like when I think of I'm going to follow that star, it's not like I'm going to find where that star exactly is. But this was different. How long are you going to be? Not sure. How far are you going? Not sure. How long you're going to be gone? Not sure. Neighbor says, man, for wise men, you're not very smart. Begins to travel. Surely those same things would have been said to Abraham when he left his home there for that promised land. Those that said, what you doing? I don't know. There's a God that's called me out. There's a God that says if I'll follow him, he'll show me things I've never seen before. It's a Noah that's building an ark even though it's never rained. Somebody said those same things to a Peter and a John and an Andrew and a James when they left their fishing nets to become fishers of men. Are you crazy? I don't know, but I've got faith that who I'm following is going to help me. You see, God's journey is always going to involve faith. The Bible says it's impossible to please God apart from faith. The reason I know this is because Hebrews chapter 11 says it something like this. If you want to please God, if you want to approach God, if you want to find God, then you first must believe that he exists and then you must also believe that he cares enough to respond to those that are seeking him. It makes a difference how you respond. That faith led them to a whole nother dimension. And that was, the Bible said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they came into the house and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. There was a, a faith that led them to Jesus. And that being in Jesus' presence. See, when they got on their journey, it was for the purpose of worship. That gold and frankincense and myrrh that they brought, it wasn't for them. When they got on their camel, all the way back in Persia or wherever it was, when they got on their camel, they had made up in their mind, when I find the Christ, I'm going to worship him. This was not an accidental encounter. The Bible has some accidental encounters in it, but I'm going to tell you far greater than the accidental encounter is the, is the encounter that started when you woke up in the morning and you got your mind fixated on him and you said, when I get into his presence, I have a gift fit for the king. I planned it from the moment I woke up. I planned it however long it was going to take. I guarded my praise with my life. I didn't let anybody steal it. I didn't let anybody take it. I didn't let anybody get rid of it somewhere on the journey but I'm going to bring him gold and frankincense and myrrh and when I find him I'm going to worship him. It's interesting. 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They came into the house. They saw the young child. They fell down and worshipped him. Watch this. And when they opened their treasures, because their worship had an element of sacrifice involved. They were wise. They were wealthy. Their luxury and knowledge and stature had brought them things that others could not afford. And so this was not cast-offs of a rich person that says, Oh, I got an extra I can give. But they came bringing luxuries. And when they knelt, they placed treasures. The gift that they placed at the feet of Jesus were not mere gifts, but they were treasures. And I'm going to tell you today that true sacrifice is not just giving something to Jesus, but it's giving something to Jesus. Jesus, that you treasure. There was a price that they had to pay. The journey was long. The journey was not going to be comfortable. I don't know if you've ever ridden a camel. I have for a very short amount of time. But I've ridden horses a lot more. And I don't care what kind of saddle you put on them. You ride a horse longer than 45 minutes. And eventually you're going to find it's not the most comfortable mode of transportation. Through the hot burning sands, through some cold nights, through some torrential downpours, they came and they said, I'll sacrifice my comfort to find the king and to worship him. And they sacrificed. A true seeker of God's presence is one that when you encounter Jesus, you're changed. Herod wanted them to come back. Herod wanted them to, 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 to get to the place where they could come and spy and say exactly what house or town Jesus was at. And Herod had another plan in mind. I'm going to kill that usurper of my throne. But when they saw that star, when they saw Jesus and Mary, when they fell down and worshipped him, when they opened their treasures and gave him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, God spoke to them and said, don't return to Herod, but leave a different way than you came. Now you could say, well, that just makes sense. You know, it was a way of kind of keeping baby Jesus safe. But I'll tell you that throughout the Bible, an encounter with God changes people. When someone says, I've been saved and there is no change, I question their salvation. When someone says, I can be saved and not have to change anything about you, I, I'm not calling you a liar, but, but you are. My Bible tells me when I get into the presence of God, something changes. That's why holiness, it, it's not so much what you have to do, but holiness is who you are when God gets a hold of your life. Jacob wrestled with God, never walked the same for the remainder of his life. Isaiah stepped into the presence of God and had to say, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, for my eyes have seen the King." the Lord of hosts, Isaiah was never the same again after that encounter. Job met God in some trying circumstances as we said this morning. But he left there completely changed. You're changed. I want to 
to ask you today a simple question. And I, I, I believe we've worshipped him. And I'm not asking you to run the aisles. I'm not asking you to come run to the altar and just wail and waylay the altar. I'm just asking you to think about something that's going to take place most likely when you leave. When Jesus returns, how will you react? Will his return be one of fear? I've met a lot of people like that. When you start talking about the rapture, people start getting nervous. They don't like that. There's fear involved. I've met other people that just feel like it's going to be an inconvenience. That's the Herod speaking. That's the carnal speaking. That's the one when Jesus came at his nativity. It said Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem. Or when Jesus returns, will there be those that are not surprised? I know no one can know the day nor the hour, and so there'll be an element of that kind of catching you. Wow, you know, I can't believe it finally happened. But to be honest, I want to live my life for the sorrows in such a way that if he comes right now, if he comes next week, or if he comes in 30 more years, I've been seeking it. I've been searching for it. And I'm ready when I finally see him. That's the spiritual side. That's the magi side. That's the wise men's side. What will your response be when he comes again? We saw what the response was when he came the first time. Now we've got to make sure we're ready when he comes the second time. When he finally comes, I don't care how many songs you've sung about heaven. I don't care how many sermons you've heard preached or even if you preach sermons. I don't care how much you've read your Bible. When, you, when he comes, it's probably not exactly the way you pictured it. Neither was it for the Magi. I know they were looking for the king of the Jews. I, I don't know that they were expecting to find him born in a manger. But it's interesting. It didn't mess them up at all. They didn't find the throne. They didn't find the scepter. They didn't find the crown. They didn't find the pomp and the circumstance. But it didn't knock them one beat off because they had been following God this whole time. And when they got to the end of their journey, that was okay what was lying there in the manger. Their faith had brought them to a place and they worshiped him. See, too often, you and I, we come to Jesus with our own preconceived ideas and notions and ideas about who he is and what he does for us, but I challenge you, don't put him in a box. Herod thought that if he found the king of the Jews, he would lose his throne, but to be honest, Herod would not have had to lose his throne because that was not the throne that Jesus was going to sit on. Herod could have still stayed exactly who he was, but even been better if he would have just sought the king. Don't put God in a box. Don't bottle him in. Don't try to make him fit your own preconceptions. But I want to tell you today, the spiritual side says I have faith in him, and however he chooses to reveal himself, I'm okay right now. Would you stand today? How will you react when Jesus comes again? 
Will you be troubled? Will you be scared? Will you be frustrated? Will you be lost? Will you want to hide? Will you want to run? Or will you have found him, found him right at the end of the journey that he started you on? And he just finally led you to the place where you finally see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want us to lift our hands right now. And I want you to begin to answer those questions in your own heart.